Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hello and good afternoon, good evening. My name is Vin Tang Preacham, the host of this ACE podcast. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Endocrine Practice, and today we have a special guest, Dr. Joshua Safer, who is Professor of Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the Executive Director of the Transgender Program. Did I say that correctly, Josh, at Mount Sinai, or is there another title for the gender program? I'm the Executive Director of our Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery here at Mount Sinai. That's right. And I, I believe it's the largest uh, center uh, of its kind in the United States. Uh, am I misquoting you, quoting myself on that or no? No, it's the, it is indeed. It's the largest um, uh, comprehensive academic center of its type in right. North America. Well, thanks, Josh, uh, for joining us on this call. Um, We want to talk a little bit about the new ACE position statement that was just released. And I know you were one of the co-authors. I also helped as well, but I, I know you put a lot of work into this. And I know that many of the audience may not be aware of the position statement. So I thought I might just spend this time just to go through what this statement says. Would that be okay, Josh? Uh, that'd be excellent. Okay, great. So before we get into the position statement, first, just let us know, what is your definition of transgender, gender-diverse? Who falls under that category? So people who are transgender or gender-diverse are people whose gender identity does not align with their other biology, specifically their other biology at birth. So the way we say it sometimes is if the sex originally recorded on your birth certificate and your gender identity are not in alignment, whatever that means, then you're in that greater crowd of transgender and and gender diverse people. The terminology is certainly changing a lot over the uh, past several years. Who else falls under the gender diverse category? I know endocrinologists know transgender because these people seek our services for hormonal treatment and monitoring. Who else might be out there that's considered gender diverse? Well, I think there are a couple of different ways of thinking about this. So in terms of people who might be seeking our care as endocrinologists, it might include people who aren't completely binary in their gender identity. And so they might not um, label themselves transgender with that term. They might say that they're on a a spectrum. They might say that they're non-binary. They might say that they're transmasculine or transfeminine. And so a range of ways of thinking about gender identity all would be included. Strictly speaking, people who are um, expressing themselves in different ways could also be included, but I don't think of some of those people as being the ones we're likely to see as endocrinologists coming from hormones per se. Great. I see. Before we go into the guidelines, just another topic of discussion is how big is this population in the United States? What are your thoughts? And can you share some data with us? The only data we have for the size of the population of transgender people 
um, or the best data is actually pretty old. It's from 2016, where a survey suggested that maybe 0.6 or about two thirds of a percent of the population identified as transgender. So a little more than one in 200 people. The when similar surveys are done with younger people, then the numbers of people who say they're gender diverse increases to a percent, a couple of percent even. But I'm not sure we know yet whether that's just how people are thinking about themselves or it's people who would actually be seeking uh, medical interventions. And there's certain, like, as you mentioned, there probably a certain percentage of the 0.6 that need hormones. And, and maybe it's not the whole 0.6, maybe it's half or 10%. We don't really know yet at this point, right? What, what uh, percentage seek hormones? Right, exactly. The only data that I throw out, which is a survey of people online from some years ago, where approximately half the people who were participating in the survey said they would be, all of whom said they were transgender, but only about half of them said they would seek medical intervention. I think that's important to, for the audience to know. So let's now discuss the different statements. There are four statements that were released, and I'll just read them out, and uh, maybe you can comment on these statements and how they apply to us as endocrinologists and the endocrine community. So the first statement is, we at ACE recommend endocrine patients who are transgender or gender diverse seek medical professionals with experience in gender affirming hormone treatment for transgender and gender diverse people. I guess the first question is, who are the experienced medical professionals? Well, right now, that's actually been a complaint from transgender people that there aren't enough medical professionals who are comfortable helping them with their hormones. But ideally, this should really include all endocrinologists. Giving sex hormones to people is a standard part of endocrinology, and the context for transgender people is different, but doesn't really require significantly different understanding of endocrine. And so actually, um, already many programs include teaching in gender-affirming mm -hmm. hormone treatment, and at some juncture, this is really going to need to include all of us. Yeah, I think so. I think that endocrinology fellows who are perhaps for the past 10 years have received education in gender forming hormone therapy. And, and from that date, everyone should be comfortable. Would you, is that an accurate statement, Josh? Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. There are still programs out there that are not teaching gender affirming hormone therapy sufficiently. Mm -hmm. So as you know, Vin, a number of us, including the two of us are working with the program director association, APTEM, to put together curriculum so that every program, even those that don't necessarily have a specific transgender focus at their institution, can have that training for their fellows. That's right. And if the program doesn't have the training, I mean, it's still required, as far as I understand, in the ABIM blueprint. So fellows should have that basic knowledge. It's a good point. And uh, getting from having it be written in the rules to having people actually have some substance there is like, is that next key piece? Yes. I also noticed that we didn't put the word physician in here. It was just medical professionals. Can you comment on the, the rationale behind that? Well, not everybody is a physician. So there are nurse practitioners. We have other allied healthcare people, and that's across all of medicine, including endocrinology. And it's not even endocrinologist. It seems like anyone, a physician or not, 
who had experience prescribing gender affirming hormone treatment can take care of transgender and gender diverse people. Oh, absolutely. That's a good point. And I think of this as people start with primary care and then you seek specialty support as much as you need it. If your primary care provider sees few transgender people and needs more mm. support from their endocrine specialist, then great. And if it's, it's somebody who has quite a large practice of transgender and gender diverse people, they're only going to maybe need some thoughts when things get more complicated. You know, the way I think about it within endocrine, if I'm talking to endocrinologists, is this is a little bit more difficult than thyroid hormone management, but it's easier than complex diabetes regimens. <laughs> and primary care providers have their expertise across that range, as we all know, and then seek us out as needed. That's a great analogy. I don't think there's much controversy with this statement. It sounds like, Josh, from what you're saying is most endocrinologists can handle this and on the periphery, other medical professionals that have experience can also handle it, but that's a smaller percentage of compared to endocrinologists that should be able to take care of this. A uh, smaller percentage, but not necessarily a smaller number okay. because think about all the primary care providers out there versus the very little, small number of endocrinologists. That's true. Maybe the denominator is much larger and that small percent might be an absolute much higher number. And that might be true. I think you're right there, Josh. Yeah. I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking Van about my own program where we have four or five labeled endocrine experts within, within the institution, but mm -hmm. we have about 20 or so labeled primary care champions, mm -hmm. all of whom have a certain facility with hormone care. Um, before we move to the next topic, let's say you have a physician or nurse practitioner who wants to provide expert care. What are some resources that he could seek out to get that knowledge base? There are a number of opportunities out there. So depending upon sophistication and how well you read things. So actually the listeners should be aware that you and I wrote a New England Journal review from 2019. And we also wrote an Annals of Internal Medicine review also in 2019 with different kind of focus that I think can be helpful for medical people. The Annals one probably a little bit more primary care focused. We have here at Mount Sinai, we actually have videos online that are free that people can simply just Google and identify. The WPATH, the um, professional organization for people who care for transgender people, has courses intermittently, including global courses and courses that are more specific to endocrinology, just thinking of some obvious um, opportunities. That's great. Thanks for that, Josh. I think that's probably of interest to many people who might be new to this and might want to learn more about it, especially if they didn't have the Stern Fellowship training. So let's move on to the next statement. This is a strongly recommend statement. So it says, we also strongly recommend that transgender and gender diverse adolescents seek gender affirming hormone therapy and or puberty blockers from multi-specialty care teams that include one, an endocrinologist or other health specialist who has medical knowledge of the advantages and disadvantages of hormone therapy and or puberty blockers, and two, a mental health specialist with expertise in the care of children and adolescents who are transgender or gender diverse. I think the focus of this recommendation is, is the uh, adolescents. So could you tell us a little bit about this statement? Why is it necessary to make this statement and how important is the statement? 
So my sense of the statement relating to transgender and gender diverse adolescents is that it includes the mental health specialist as part of the team. And the part of the problem with identifying transgender people is that they need to tell us that they're transgender by self-report. And for the most part, for when, when you're dealing with adults who don't have any reason why there should be any barrier to their being able to articulate their gender identity, you can take them at, at face value. If there isn't a mental health concern that's pretty apparent, I would think to endocrinologists and to primary care providers that would cause there to be a requirement for more investigation there, then pretty much it is what it is. But the younger you go, the less reliable that self-report. And it's not just whether the kids are transgender or not. It's also making decisions about what it is they want to do about it. So like we talked about already, maybe half of people who are transgender are looking for medical interventions and maybe fewer. And so if we're looking for self-report about somebody being transgender and then also making decisions about their health care, a bigger team with more eyes is, to me, the appropriately conservative mm -hmm. approach. That makes a lot of sense. I noticed that there's no age put in this statement. Is that intentional? That's a good question. Is that, that we talk about kids, I think we kind of arbitrarily use 18 as a cutoff. I, I hadn't really thought more than that. It's a spectrum, of course. Younger people, bluntly, we're going to trust them less. As we get into junior high and, and high school, we have the data where kids who say they're transgender, we check up on them 10 years later, pretty much they're still doing their medical regimen. They were more able to articulate mm -hmm. both their gender identity and what it is that they wanted to do about it. I don't know. Did I think, you have thoughts about that one? I think people mature at different ages. And I think just putting an age might not be appropriate for everyone, you know? So, you know, there might be a 15 year old who still is exploring what they really want to do. And had uh, there been an, an age, they may come in with uh, unrealistic expectations saying, I've already turned X age. This is what I want to do. Even though, even though they haven't yet solidified in their gender identity. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I've sat on a panel with a nine-year-old who could tell us all what to do. And on the other hand, I've certainly had college students as patients where uh, they needed to spend more time working out what they're, how they wanted to approach things. I agree. So I think statement two is pretty clear. I think the bottom line with that one is younger the kid, we need more people just to make sure the kid's making the right uh, thinking about the process and different options and what is best overall from the kid and the family. Is that, that's, is that well summarized? I think so. Yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, the third one is it's an opposed statement. Well, the next two are opposed statements. So the third one is we strongly oppose legislation that limits access of endocrine patients to establish medical therapies recommended for treatment of transgender and gender diverse use. ACE strongly believes that decisions impacting healthcare of endocrine patients are best left to the health professional, the patient, and the patient's families, like for all medical care. So your thoughts on that one? Well, it's interesting to me because this is self-evident. This is more or less my understanding of the approach in the United States to healthcare, which is that healthcare decisions 
are between patients and their doctors or their other health professionals, or in the case of youth, the families. And so, and in fact, we put in there like for all medical care, because (laughs) this is like for all medical care. The idea that there are politicians out there who think there is a political aspect to what to me is simply a conversation about good health care is just surprising to me. I guess I will put it that way. I'm not really sure why somebody with a certain political view would not just favor good medical care. It doesn't feel like a political thing to me. Yeah, I think I, I agree on that 100%, Josh. It seems very puzzling to me why a condition that's very well accepted in the medical community, why someone out there would care what the family is deciding. And uh, I think it could be potentially very harmful for families when they have a condition and they everyone is on board, the medical professional, the, fa- the families and the patient but there's uh, some sort of block to standard medical practice. So it just seems wrong to me. It is interesting that it was a statement we had to put in there. Right. It makes me very nervous that any legislature would think that they should legislate medical care in any subject. And I worry it's a slippery slope. You know, Mm -hmm. what are they going to do? Start choosing your insulin regimen because they don't want you to use a product from this company versus that company, or I don't know what the bias or think that pills are amoral and therefore you should have a shot. Like where does it end? Maybe there's a law against sliding scale insulin, right? (laughs) Exactly. You know, I don't know what somebody will think when somebody stops being scientific. I have no, you know, then it gets very random what they're going to think, you know, to our endocrinology colleagues, you know, we are the people who should be consulted by our respective legislatures, you would think. I would think so. I didn't see any endocrinologists on some of these laws. You're right. I would think that they would contact an endocrinologist and, and just to confirm that this is a condition that's globally treated and then it wouldn't make any sense to make a law against it. Exactly. Exactly. Let's go to the last one. And this is another strongly opposed. It says, we strongly oppose legislation that criminalizes physician and other health professionals who provide medically appropriate endocrine care as recommended by established medical guidelines. It's kind of seems obvious to me, but what are your thoughts on this one? Right. That too is true for all of medical care. I'm looking at that and thinking you're going to make a law mandating that physicians violate their professional oath, like the Hippocratic oath or equivalent. I don't know if we've ever done that before in this country. I can think of areas where we've had conversations. You know, it's like with regard to where society has determined to harm an individual, let's say in a prison system or something like that. And what are the ethics of medical professionals participating, but trying to criminalize medical providers for providing the current medical standard of care on any medical topic is, is bizarre. It's crazy that we have to say it. I mean, it seems so silly, but I mean, there are physicians who are very concerned about that. I've heard that there are physicians who have stopped taking care of transgender and gender diverse youth because of this law that's come out in certain states. And I mean, it's hard to, I mean, everyone has to make their own decisions, but I can imagine from their standpoint, I mean, they went to school and that's their livelihood to be stripped of their license would be maybe a risk too much for them. I mean, what is your advice to them? 
Uh, right, I agree. It, this is the situation where you need allies. I don't think I'm asking a specific medical provider in a specific locale to jeopardize themselves. And I'm not just thinking, talking about it from the perspective of their own livelihood, but it's also all their other patients for whom they're caring. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, as endocrinologists, we're actually a, a small specialty, uh, a little bit oversubscribed typically. And so there's, so you certainly don't want to jeopardize that. On the other hand, I think the reason why this statement needed to be made is, is as an establishment endocrinology organization, ACE has to be clear that having nothing to do with any politics, this is a problem. I mean, can you imagine someone being arrested in, in their practice just for following standard medical guidelines? You'd be raising up your hand saying, which law did I break here? <laughs> I'm following the ACE or endocrine society guidelines here. Right. I agree. And I, again, I'm not sure. It's a very problematic line to be considering crossing because I don't know that as a society, we've actually crossed it, but some of these legislatures are trying to cross it right now. And yeah, I don't know where it ends because I don't know what will be a politically popular, similarly Mm -hmm. not logical thought in another area of medical care. Yeah, I agree. So Josh, those are the four statements. And I think I'd open the floor for any other comments or statements that you'd want to make on this issue. It's been a uh, very challenging past two years with all these new state bills trying to get passed. And and some some states have not passed them, which is good and that's appropriate, but then some have. And uh, these are being argued all over the country. Uh, so yeah, what do well, you say? I mean, I mean, my main thoughts are I can't wait to have this return to being boring and having this simply be doctor patient care. I'm, I'm thinking in the UK, um, there, briefly, there was some controversy last year and fortuitously where a court actually tried to block care to young transgender people and fortuitously the appeals court pretty much using language along the lines of this is medical care. We need these decisions to be made by patients and their physicians. I'm looking forward to getting back to that. That's pretty boring, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) But I agree. I want to go back to boring too, and just take care of endocrine patients the way that we all do. So I just want to thank you again, Josh, for joining us on this podcast. I hope the audience enjoyed it, but I think it really highlighted an area that we're probably unfortunately not going to hear the end of anytime soon. So I think it's important for our endocrine community to hear about these issues. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's an honor to join you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.